Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where today I am joined by Joe Swinson, Deputy Leader of the Liberal Democrats. But for how long? Swinson is currently competing against Ed Davey to replace Vince Cable as the party's next leader. When Swinson first entered Parliament in 2005, she made history as the first ever MP to be born in the 1980s and the then baby of the House. During the coalition, Swinson served as a business minister. She lost her seat, however, in the 2015 general election, along with many of her Lib Dem colleagues. But she swiftly made a return in the 2017 snap election. Since then, it hasn't all been plain sailing. Last year, three weeks after giving birth, Swinson was dragged into a pairing row while on maternity leave, after the Conservative Party chairman Brandon Lewis breached a non-voting arrangement with Swinson to vote with the government on a knife-edge Brexit vote. On Brexit, with the Lib Dems now pitching themselves as the voice of Remain, complete with the slogan bollocks to Brexit, Swinson's party has of late enjoyed a resurgence in the polls. Her ambitions now go further than just being the leader of her own party. She recently declared, I'd love to be Prime Minister. Politics is more volatile than ever, so who knows? Thank you very much for joining me today, Joe. How is life on the campaign trail? Busy, enjoyable. Uh, it's been really positive to get out and about and speak with so many Lib Dem members up and down the country and our party is in really good spirits because we've had great election success in the locals and then the European elections and we've got these 20,000 people who've joined the party in the last couple of months so that's been really good to meet lots of people that have just come to the party and find out a bit more about them too. And as someone who has spent a lot of the past month covering the Conservative leadership race it definitely feels as though the Lib Dem leadership has perhaps less drama less backstabbing yeah yeah absolutely so it's just it's me and ed and we it's it's a contest between friends you know we've known each other for 20 years and we like each other we respect each other and so i think within the party it's genuinely been seen as a sort of positive experience to kind of test and put us through our paces and for members to come to a decision which i'm obviously hoping that they will choose that i've should be the leader, but not the kind of animosity in the Conservative race. Now, on this podcast, we like to begin by talking briefly about what you're doing before, in this case, you became an MP. Though you did become an MP quite early, so... Yeah, there's so, not... and, and twice, right? So, exactly, so, so, so this section won't be particularly long. But you grew up in the west of Scotland and you attended your local state school. And I was wondering, did politics play much of a role when you were growing up? Was it something you discussed around the dinner table? Yeah, so my... My parents were both sort of public servants. My mum was a teacher. She's now retired. My dad uh, worked in economic development. He was initially a town planner and worked for the the Scottish Enterprise uh, organisation, which kind of supports economic development in Scotland. And they really gave me a strong sense of, of public service. And we did discuss current affairs, but they weren't particularly political. My dad did do a bit of helping out at the by-election for Roy Jenkins and Hillhead with the SDP. But maybe I was about 13 when I sort of first was drawn to the Lib Dems and then I joined when I went to university at 17 at the Freshers' Fair. Now, you studied at LSE and you did a degree in management. And I was just wondering, why did you choose management? Because I'm quite used to interviewing MPs who often obviously did PPEs, the obvious one. Wow, so that's interesting. So, I mean, I didn't set out to be a politician. I really was interested in business. I was very clear that I wanted to go 
and you know working business as I did as a marketing manager for a radio station and a and then a, a media company in Glasgow and it was uh, it was really through standing for parliament for the first time that I decided I actually wanted to do politics so the first time I stood for parliament in 2001 against John Prescott yeah, you know, I, I didn't want to win. I, I just thought it would be an interesting thing to do. Politics was sort of what I did in my spare time. Now, you mentioned standing for an MP in 2001. I was wondering, how did you find the Lib Dem candidate selection process? Because we had Leila Moran on this podcast previously, and she was saying how one of the questions she was surprised to be asked during that was, when do you plan to have children? So I was wondering if you had any any of those kind of things uh, arise. So in 2001, I was 21. So perhaps it wasn't. Uh, I was selected. Well, it's interesting. So I was selected. I have even been selected when I was 20, I think, because we knew the election was, I was going to be 21 in time. At that time, you had to be 21 to be able to stand. So I was literally old enough by three months. I stood for the Sheffield Hallam selection a, a couple of years later. And I did get asked... Yeah, which I thought was really ironic, you know, you know, how could you possibly do it if you were to have a family? And I was like, well, the Prime Minister at the moment, Tony Blair, has literally just had a baby, but he's a man. And I'm like, and I'm standing against somebody who at this mo- moment in time has young children, because I was up against Nick Clegg, who I think his first child was very young at the time. So, so yeah, I mean, I did get asked it. But what I would say is I also met lots of people who said, we need more young people in politics, we need more women in politics. So I think it cut both ways. One thing that happened recently, actually, which was uh, I was asked by a journalist, like in this leadership campaign, which is effectively a job interview, I was asked if I was going to have any more children. And I just kind of said, look, you know, would you ask that question to Ed Davey? Because, you know, and, and to be fair, the journalist didn't run it, you know, which is, I think, perhaps my retort might have made them think twice. But I think it is interesting the way in which this is still seen as a kind of acceptable question of, of women and stereotyping of, of women, you know, even you know, 40 years after it became illegal to have pregnancy discrimination and so on. And we know it's still a really big problem in society. Yeah, and I was going to say on that, we've seen with Stella Creasy, Creasy recently talking about how she's become pregnant, but you don't have maternity pay in the same way you would in another role. Now, I had uh, one Conservative MP say to me that, although they sympathised with Stella Creasy, it would actually be uh, very costly to to bring in maternity pay per MP. I, I presume you're supportive of what Stella Creasy is arguing for. I'm very supportive of what Stella is doing. I'm delighted that she's pregnant and saw her last night and wished her congratulations and uh, and all the best for it. And it's great that she's using it to campaign again. And this place, this parliament building, it only changes slowly and with huge effort. And so, you know, we got the proxy voting change earlier this year. But I mean, that took me being denied of my vote in the pairing scandal last summer when I was at home with that my two-week-old baby. Uh, yeah, Brandon Lewis appeared to vote on a very crunch amendment. He did amendment. vote on, on two when, votes that were crunch votes. Um, when he was supposed to be. Supposed to not be voting. And uh, he swears it was a, a mistake. Well, did he speak to you after it? Well, yeah, I saw. I, I hadn't spoken to him directly about it until until recently. We were both on the on the Sunday show together, and they were kind of doing this like shot, like at the beginning, where it was like, right, you've got to sit really close to each other, and it was just all a little bit awks. But um, anyway, so so yeah, <laughs> did I, you bring I, it up? Uh, yeah, yeah. He was like, oh, yeah, it really was, and I was like, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, 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 you know, it was a mistake, as in he shouldn't have done it, and he's, you know, le- learned that now. But I, I, I don't believe it was uh, unintentional uh, for him to vote in those. Divisions so he knew he was paired so so yeah 
But it also took Tulip Sadiq having to delay her C-section. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, it takes pretty big stuff to get what was a very simple, obvious change. And I think that history will look back at this and think, my goodness, how, how long did it take for Parliament to actually start to mirror some of the protections that we legislate to put in place for other workplaces, which are not properly honoured in many cases, and that's a big problem. But we have... We have a real difficulty if we can't even get our own house in order to be able to to credibly, you know, make the case that you know that this will happen in, in workplaces and, and protect pregnant women and new parents in workplaces across the country. Now, looking at when you won your seat, so two thousand and five election, East Dunbartonshire. So, talk us through that. Was that a seat that you expected to have a good chance in? So, I uh, I decided to go for it in two thousand and two. Um, when I'd figured out that I wanted to do politics a bit more seriously after my experience in 2001, thinking, goodness, I enjoy standing for Parliament much more than I enjoy being a marketing manager for a radio station. And at that time when I was coming to that conclusion, I saw a cutting that my mum sent me from the local newspaper that said my home seat was having boundary changes. That meant it was a prospect for the Lib Dems. It was something which basically, you know, was like how how will I feel if I don't go for this because this is like the perfect opportunity and it was a Labour seat and you know notionally held depending on which analysis you looked at a majority of between two and a half and six thousand so I thought it might be a two election job it might take seven years to win it from when I got selected in 2003 but I got stuck in ran a strong campaign and happily the Labour MP was quite complacent and and won it in 2005. And what surprised you about Parliament? I have found it a fairly friendly place, if I'm honest. Managing to have good relationships with people in all different sorts of parties on a personal level, even if I might profoundly disagree with them on on a political level. And I I think that's quite a civilised way to do politics. And I think we need to kind of get into the habit as a country of disagreeing well a bit more. So, yeah, but I suppose how difficult it is to change. I mean, even now, I sort of think, wow, you know, it just... It is really hard. The vested interest in this place of keeping everything the way it is, sort of preserved in former centuries, just means change needs a huge amount of energy and drive and cross-party working. But it can happen. And, and actually, people like John Burko have been really instrumental in that because you know, he's been very much on the kind of modernising agenda. Now, you get to the 2010 election, that result, a good result in many ways for the Lib Dems, and suddenly there's an opportunity for power through the Lib Dem Conservative Coalition. What were your thoughts when Nick Clegg took that decision to lead the Lib Dems towards that? That process, I recall what felt like endless meetings of the parliamentary party, the group of Lib Dem MPs and members of the House of Lords. I was also on the party's federal executive committee, And then we had this special conference in Birmingham where I think 5,000 of our members all came and had to approve the coalition agreement and the decision to do it. So obviously Nick was leader and was, you know, at the, the heart of the negotiations, but it very much was a decision that we took as a party and we deliberated. So in those many hours of discussion, we really looked at it from every angle I, you know, I stand by it was the right decision to go into that coalition government in the national interest in the middle of a crisis and with an opportunity to deliver significant chunks of our manifesto and show that Liberal Democrats could, could be in government and do that and make progress towards a kind of liberal society. I knew when I was voting for that 
in 2010 that that probably wouldn't go down particularly well in the west of Scotland. But, I mean, why do you go into politics? You go into politics because you want to do things and to change things. And so this, I was clear, was the right decision for us. And so, yeah, I I wasn't going to be overly swayed by what the consequence might be, given it was the right thing to do. And obviously I did lose my seat, but I I had my eyes open in that sense. Uh, We didn't get everything right, obviously. And I think we rightly talk about the successes of our time in government, taking people on low payout of income tax, more money into schools for the poorest pupils, same-sex marriage. But I think we have to be honest about the stuff that we got wrong as well and uh, and how we've learned from that and just be grown up about it. Because I suppose on the latter point, one of the things, I mean, was you, you were one of the Lib Dem MPs who voted in favour of allowing tuition fees to be raised to £9,000. Now, in Scotland, tuition fees you don't pay them so it wasn't something that necessarily affected your constituents unless they wanted to study in England but did you realize at the time or have an inkling of what effect go voting for that as a party would have on your party standing on your reputation yeah this is definitely one of the learning points for me and I vividly remember how I felt when you know I was in because I was Vince Cable's PPS parliamentary aid at the time so I was involved in some of those meetings you know my, I sort of had this sinking feeling and we looked at the policy and if you look at the policy we actually delivered you helped people on lower incomes we had you know grants and bursaries we enhanced participation from lower income backgrounds in fact more young people from low income backgrounds were going to university as a result so you can kind of look at it on a technical policy basis and say actually what we managed to deliver was we, you know had a lot of positives but I mean actually it's a very simple thing you know we said we wouldn't do it and we did it and we shouldn't have done that and that sinking feeling that I had was absolutely right and so for me it's just learning to listen to that instinct because at the time I was also listening to other people who I was like well they're more experienced than me they you know they they they've figured this out and and actually no I I should have trusted trusted my gut instinct. Do you regret it? Yeah absolutely. Now you talked about some of the good and the bad things from the coalition I was I was sat in Prime Minister's Questions today and we saw Jeremy Corbyn going on the attack on Theresa May, but it seemed to be more of an attack of Joe Swinson Yeah, in, in many senses. I think you might be worried. Exactly, looking at the polls. But one of the things you can see, and perhaps it's a future Labour attack line, whether or not you become the leader, is to look at your record in coalition to clearly talk not just no longer about just Tory austerity, but try and make it coalition austerity. Sure. So he was talking about fees for employment tribunals. But I was wondering, do you think... I mean, he was, obviously, he was inaccurate in what he said as well, because there was a Ministry of Justice policy and I fought against it in coalition. And you know, But yeah, um, he, he's not worried about accuracy, is he? Do you think your record can be used against you? Well, as I say, people like Jeremy Corbyn aren't going to necessarily be bothered about what the facts are. So do I anticipate that there will be attacks? Absolutely. You know, I'm, I recognise I'm taking on vested interests, right? I'm saying we need to have a strong liberal movement to stand up to the forces of nationalism and populism and, and say to people that there is a better alternative out there. And I know that millions of people in our country are crying out for this. But obviously, those forces of nationalism and populism aren't going to be too chuffed about that. They will be attacking me. I I totally expect that this is what will happen. And, you know, if you look at when, you know, in the 2010 election, the attacks that were dished out on Nick Clegg when he was doing well in the polls, I mean, it's there's a there's a kind of playbook of what the kind of right wing press will do. And yeah, I mean, that's just part of politics. 
And what was it like in the aftermath of that 2015 election? I mean, you knew you had a marginal seat, but I suppose even if you brace yourself for the worst, there's nothing like it until it actually happens. And it must have been hard to deal with. The time was it felt like like there was this sort of brick wall ahead of like the election day and I was like running at it full pelt and I didn't know if it was a brick wall I was hoping it was like one of those cartoon things where it's like a paper drawing of a brick wall and you run at it and then you can actually just go through it and I didn't know if that was I was going to make it through or if literally I was just going to run into a brick wall and obviously it was the the latter in that analogy was kind of what happened um but what do you what do you do in the weeks after I mean when I have something bad (laughs) happen to me I want to strive I basically binge eat watch a series on repeat do you did you ha- so have I, any points so like I that I think or? ice cream was consumed uh, I think that's fair to say I think actually one of the best tonics was Andrew our little boy because you can't just sit around and mope if you've got a becoming a toddler as he was because they they want your attention and also they take your mind off it and then looking to 2017 the snap election is called and at that point did you just did you see it and think I'm going for it straight away? Yes, absolutely. It was absolutely. Uh, it, it was just something innate. I mean, you know, you just felt it inside me, and I the, the, the determination and the focus with which I was just, I am going to win my seat back, and you know, immediately you know got fundraising, got you know leaflets and letters out, and of course this was just a few weeks after Nicola Sturgeon had called that we should have India F2, and so people in Eastern Bartonshire who had voted, you know, like two thirds basically to, uh, to to stay in the UK were not best pleased, uh, and so yeah, it was a it was a it was actually a really enjoyable campaign. Now for the final section of this podcast, we like to ask a few more quick fire questions. So I suppose the first, this could be your future sparring mate if things go as as you hope in the Lib Dem leadership contest. So what do you have in common with Boris Johnson? We often hear what you don't agree on. Uh, we're both MPs. Uh, is something we have in common. We've both got the letters J-O in our name. In my case, it's in my first name. In his case, it's in his surname. You have so much in common. You're clearly yeah, going to be good yeah. friends. Um, I'm I'm really I'm struggling to 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 find more because I just find him somebody who is entirely unfit to be prime minister and really hard to respect because of the way in which he acts and shows callous disregard for others not least Nazanin Zakari Radcliffe sorry that wasn't very quick fire and light-hearted was it sorry Um, (laughs) it's it's hard to see you and I think you've ruled it out striking a coalition agreement with someone like Boris Johnson yeah yeah Uh, uh, yeah impossible but yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. strange things have happened in the past three years final question is I had a female minister actually say to me that she didn't think the Lib Dem membership would pick a woman to be the next leader because if you look at the party over the years she thinks that actually the Lib Dems often do have a record for not being as forward on gender even though you would think it was some of the policies I was wondering what do you think of that well I we will see what the result is when we find out shortly I mean, the, I mean, let's let's face it. I mean, one of the main reasons that the Lib Dems haven't had a woman leader before is there's only ever been one woman who's run for leadership of the party, and she was running against Charles Kennedy, and there was five candidates in the race, you know. So, and Charles was a pretty exceptional, amazingly talented politician. So, you know, I I don't think that really stacks up, and I totally think the Lib Dem membership's ready to have a woman leader. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any of our many podcasts, please do get in touch. Just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk.